we know our product works well because we give this product to people in sports teams. We give this product to people in in um, regular companies, and and the end users are just kind of regular people. And retention is good. Like our core product is good. Um, so we decided, right? How about we spend some time just going putting a subscription offering and try figure out if we can grow this because um, that might be the only bully that we have. So we kind of split and, you know, my co-founder was trying to figure out if B2B could scale. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go figure out if the consumer side could scale because we need to make a decision and we need to get something working before we run out of cash. Hey everyone, this is Nima Gardidek, your host for the Hypergrowth Experience. I've got another episode here with Leon Sasan, the co-founder and CTO of Rise Science. It's a sleep tracking app that launched during the pandemic after a, a pivot from uh, helping s- folks in sports uh, improve their sleep and, and performance uh, and going direct to consumer afterwards. So it was great to speak to him. We had a lot in common, um, mostly around building cool stuff, but uh, robotics, physics, and even we touched on uh, economics for a little bit uh, on the on the pod. Uh, and it was really great to hear his story uh, and and Rye Sides' story throughout the pandemic with this big pivot uh, and what they had to do to reallocate sort of the resources of the company and and go through a big change um, and survive through it. So uh, I have a lot of respect for him and his co-founder for going through that process. Uh, we also touched on iOS 14.5 and the big changes to the standards of privacy in the ecosystem and how the it affected their uh, growth and uh, their approach to to marketing. Uh, and I'm glad to be able to uh, talk to someone who is a little bit more technical than the average marketer um, who understands sort of how these things connect. Uh, it, was, it was great to talk to him. So I hope you enjoyed the chat. Uh, here's, uh, here's Leon. I've always been a builder. That's kind of like, I'm still a builder. That's my main thing. Since I was a kid, kind of just like building robots and learning how to program since I was like 10, kind of like that kind of stuff. So it's super like that was always super fun. I was kind of a, that guy that was always trying to just build games and, you know, build electronics. What was like this? Was there like a first thing that got you into it? Was there like a specific thing you built or what, I guess, what was the curiosity starting from? Where was it? I don't really know, but my mom always said that I would like tear apart like my toys to get the electronics I don't know why I would do that, but apparently as a kid, as a, like a five-year-old, six-year-old, I would do that. But no, I think I was really into gaming as a lot of people were. And I just wanted, I was like, how do I just build my own game? And then it's like, oh, okay, you can program things. And then you start like figure out how to program. There was a small kind of computer lab at my school, at my K-12 school. This was like only for seniors, but like I would go in and try to just use basic. Um, I don't know why they had basic in those computers because it was 2000, I don't know, 2000, the year 2000 probably or something. Um, and I would just start building games and then you realize like, holy cow, you can just kind of make computers do whatever you want. And, you, you know, that just becomes kind of like an unfathomable thing that it's like you can, like whatever you can think of, you can just make the computer do. And that just ends up opening up this rabbit hole of like, all right, you can just do things. And that led me, I don't know how I made the jump, but then I was like, 
huh, what's like below the computer? Like I type these things in the computer and then it does something. Like I type like made a little game and you can move the, you know, the, your character in the game. And it's like, why when I press a key, does it move the character? And then you realize like, okay, there's like, there's like electronics and like, there's something that your code ends up being into like this thing called chips and semiconductors and like all these layers in between. So you went from like, I'm curious about the software thing because I like games to, oh, how does this thing work? And then you got into this hardware layer. That's interesting. This gaming path is so common uh, for engineers that I meet and I'm quite grateful for them. I think I got into software for, because of gaming as well, but I, um, at that point I'd gotten into hardware already and I was building stuff um, <clears throat> and then started playing PlayStation Portable. And then I was like, I want to hack this thing to get free <laughs> games on it um, and start learning engineering. So yeah, this gaming path is interesting. So you go down to the hardware level and then you start building robots. That So I actually also did that, but I'm, I'm curious, how, was there like a thing in your school or you were just like, I want to build stuff? No, no. My school had none of the, like, I was in a small school in Panama. So like, it, you know, I think now my, that school has a bunch of like STEM programs for kids. But, you know, I, I was still, the main activity was like going to play soccer, right? Like with my yeah. friends. So this was like <laughs> after um, or something. But um, yeah, it, I don't know how it went. You know, you go into electronics and there's like, oh crap, you can like learn that electrons flow and you go from analog to digital and you can like start figure out how the building blocks work and that was maybe like a two three year period where i didn't do software and i would it's a longer story but i would like i had this like imaginary company and you can the, the large semiconductor suppliers in the world you know fairchild semiconductor mauser distribution they're, you know, large B2B companies, massive organizations, and you can actually order samples um, and they would overnight them for you. Like if you need a transistor, most customers are like very large kind of R&D department. So if you needed like a single chip, you can just like place an order for free and they would overnight it to you anywhere in the world That's as like amazing. a sample. <laughs> and then, you know, you can only do that like five times a month or something. So I would just get parts for free uh, on this like imaginary company I had to build robots because you I couldn't find how to get like parts in Panama. So you start like ordering chips and ordering transistors and like high power, you know, you know, electronics. So that was kind of like a fun little, um, just building stuff. Um, and I don't know how I then just kept going back into software and in school got a lot in college, got a lot back into it. And I guess here we are, you know, doing a lot well, of software these days. And so, how, so you chose eventually go to, you studied computer science, right? Well, I then went to Chicago for university. Um, and I actually started as a physics major, um, which is another rabbit hole. Cause like, if you go deeper from like games to software, then electronics, and it was like, how do the electronics work? So you can spend two years trying to figure out the <laughs> physics work. So I went very deep. I realized I'm not good at math at that level. I don't really like theoretical physics. I'm like, that's just not for me. Um, but I then kind of got into like, I designed my own major cause I was really into industrial engineering and computer science, uh, which are kind of have a lot of similarities, but they're still very different programs. So, um, spending a lot of time thinking about the industrial engineering side of the house too, which is kind of like, how do you optimize 
processes and systems and everything in the world is t- tends to be like a statistical systems like not very few things are deterministic they're kind of like statistical processes you know you can call them stochastic process analysis um and i think that was just really interesting to blend that with computer science which was kind of like more theoretical just like how the you know how to design computers and algorithms and systems on that front so that's cool. Do you feel like that helped you on the industrial design side think in prob- probabilities and less in like binary outcomes? Oh, I'm, yeah. I think the you know by no means I'm like great at statistics, but at least a program like that gives you pretty good foundation of the basics. Um, so you can just at least understand what you don't know, and you there's a lot of like counterintuitive nature to statistics, and like our brains are really bad at it. Um, I was just chatting with my, you know, wife, I think last weekend, and I was telling her like the birthday paradox, um, which is like a very common, like stats one-on-one problem of like, um, you know, if you're in a group of 20 people, what are the odds that two people in that group share the birthday, you know, share the same birthday. And, you know, if you think about it, most people say like, well, you know, 20 out of 365. So it's maybe like a little bit less than, you know, 10%. Right, because there's a lot of days in the year. It's 165, so the odds are low. But no, it's actually almost like probably higher than 60 percent because the way statistics works, you just have a lot of permutations of you know 20 people at each, each against another 20 in a way. So um, even some of that basic statistical foundation and at least understanding that it's counterintuitive and what at first sight, things may not actually look the way they are. I think it just becomes like pretty powerful down the line. Um, especially now that I work a lot in, in, in growth and, and even product, right? Like a lot of just trying to pick up patterns and know, and know when there are patterns and when there aren't patterns. And it's just kind of like data or signal from all the sources uh, that aren't actually real. Do you feel like you're in, base intuition has changed or you just have the intellectual um, guardrails around these things? Like if you look at a situation, do you like intuitively know that this is not a binary outcome or it's like your brain starts running and you're like, okay, well, this is probably a probabilistic situation. And then you start thinking through it. Yeah. I mean, I think I rarely like actually go and like run the numbers and everything. I don't think you can live life that way, but um, there's a lot of things that you're I think my intuition, it just makes me skeptical of most things out of the hand, which sometimes is annoying for everyone around me. Cause like, it's just very easy for there to be a pattern when there, for there to appear to be a pattern when there isn't, um, especially when having things that are very complicated systems. And that goes everywhere from like, you know, when I'm reading books about nutrition and like, there's so much complicated science on like what actually works because statistics are really hard, for example. Right. Um, all the way to sort of like regular day-to-day stuff when, um, you know, the, the classic example, like you run into someone, you know, from your childhood at like the grocery store and you're like, oh, what are the odds that you ran into them? And it's like, well, if you actually want to run yeah. the odds, it's like pretty, it's <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. high that yeah. you're running to one of the thousand people you've ever met at the place that you were, you know, at your hometown, right? Like yeah. the odds are pretty people high. People have so. these like, oh, fate or the world is like right. so mysterious. It's, I'm like, well... No, it's not that mysterious that you like ran into the friend that you went to like this university with and 
they're in New York because you also live in New York. It definitely makes me a lot more skeptical, but I think it's kind of a healthy, healthy dose of, of skepticism. Sometimes it's good. Yeah, I think that's that's a probably a generally good approach, especially when you're looking at, uh, in my head, the way you say like complex systems, like the way I think about these things, it's like systems that have a lot of dependencies, like systems that are reliant on all these things that you don't understand yet. Um, and so you look at one isolated incident or why one isolated metric and you just think you understand them all of a sudden. Um, I think people in economics tend to have this problem. It's like very hard to um, trust people in economics, in my opinion, just because they, the explanations are always way too simple. Um, when you have like many billions of people interacting at scale, um, it's just really hard to actually understand their behavior. So you, you're trying to like look at inflation right now and read about it. And there's all these like neo economists talking about it. I just don't believe most of them um, just because the explanations are just like too simple. <laughs> I want like, I want like a five page essay about why you think there is inflation. I'd like, I need a math. I would like a math degree to understand it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how hard it should be just given the complexity of the system. No, complex systems are interesting. I, I definitely are an expert. Took a few kind of undergrad research classes, actually trying to understand, trying to model some, you know, things like VC funding and, you know, as complex systems. But there's a whole subfield called uh, agent-based modeling, which instead of trying to be like, you know, back to your inflation point, instead of trying to model like, hey, what's the formula that, you know, models, you know, supply and demand and inflation and monetary policy into like one nice equation. But you can also approach it as an agent-based modeling that is like, imagine you had a, you know, a thousand kind of units, agents, and each is kind of like a family or a household. And they have very simple rules, right? Like they, you know, as part of the rules, they do very simple things. Like they put in a unit of work and they spend X amount of money and they, and, and you get very complicated emergent behaviors emerging from very simple subset of rules that often actually can converge with the like regular, not regular, but traditional economic analysis. And um, that field is fascinating. I got a good friend of mine that works in that and doing a lot of research on how to use this new set of tools uh, that can be computational intensive to do that kind of like macro level modeling, which is whole which is different. Quite, it's super cool though. I, I have, I like one of these economists actually, I think he talks about the three agents of capitalism. Um, and like, uh, it's like the consumer, the bank, and the and the government, and, and talks uh, through it and, and runs some models. It's quite interesting. I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, I like those models a lot because I actually think that's the right way of thinking it about it. It's just the atomic units that um, end up creating the more complex system. It's almost understanding the atoms better, and then you'll like get a sense of how the whole thing works. Um, Although in physics, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> you keep going deeper, you don't understand how things work. So, um, Cool. So you went to school. So it sounds like you were already into startups in, in school. You were doing research about v venture capital. Yeah, I, I just got into, I don't know, in, in school, you're just exposed to a lot of things, which I think that's one of the best things about school. You know, there's a lot of the, a lot of the conversation these days is pretty anti-university, which I'm, I'm squarely contrarian against like i i think going to school as being for someone from panama we kind of very different point of view in the world very different access to things it just really opens up and, and exposes you to things that you wouldn't otherwise but um 
very quickly, you know, you are there extracurriculars and like your friends are doing interesting things. And my friend was like, oh, look at this startup thing and like get an internship. And you just like get exposed to like, oh, wow, there's just a whole new world of things happening. And um, it helps that I liked programming and software. So, you know, that just fits right into the tech and startup world. But um, yeah, just doing a bunch of research and and one of my, that's how I got into what we do, which is one of my best friends back then, who's now my business partner, um, he was very into sleep. He would just tell me like, you know, you get better sleep. I used to be the person that slept like five hours. I thought <laughs> sleep was a waste of time. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I want to like, you know, have fun. Yeah, sleep is for the week. I want to have fun. But then I'm also engineering school. So I have dumb problem sets until 4 a.m., and class at 9 a.m. So like, you're just not sleeping. Um, and then my friend was like, my friend Jeff, he was like, you should stop doing that. You're like literally functioning like a drunk person based on all these interesting papers and you're killing yourself. And he would just start sharing me the data and the scientific literature and studies. And long story short, I started changing my habits there. But then he also got very into doing research, not only like learning about it, but also doing some research um, with the, you know, a couple of professors, Northwestern had very good sleep scientists. Um, and for some reason back then, a lot of, even now, but back then there were more, a lot of sleep performance studies, a very good outcome for performance and ends up being athletic performance because uh, it's very often very quantifiable and people care a lot about it. So we just did a lot of research with football teams and lacrosse and soccer, like just a lot of the kind of uh, college, you know, division sports teams um, on how sleep affects, you know, how fast they run, their accuracy, their, you know, strength training, all that stuff. Um, and long story short, I guess, their research became kind of like a program that we could then deliver to any sports team. And that's when we like first launched as a small company when I was still in college, just working with kind of higher end sports teams to to try getting sleep as part of their just very intense set of discipline training they do, right? If you're a football player, you're doing all sort of both from like your strength training to get stronger to your kind of like actual function. If you're a quarterback versus a lineman versus a kicker, like you do a lot of functional training. Um, but then you have nutrition and mental health and like sleep was a big hole. It still is to some extent, but now there's a lot more awareness, but back then you're talking 2012, 2013, um, it was not that clear and, and even tracking sleep was a nightmare, right? Like I spent probably three years trying to figure out how to track sleep reliably and it's just, but back then when we first started this stuff. Fitbit was like the Fitbit wristband didn't exist. So they had the, and it was called, I think the ultra or the ultra. It was kind of like a clip that would go on your belt or your pocket, not an actual wrist. So it wouldn't even track sleep or activity. Wow. Yeah. Was Jawbone out then? I think like right around that time Jawbone was launching maybe. Jawbone launched a year 2014, I think. That's when we started trying to, you know, get a partnership with them. And, and you had a few other players and it's not that we invented tracking, but Tracking wasn't like an easy thing to do, right? Bluetooth wasn't reliable. So most trackers, you still needed to connect to USB and 
try getting a hundred football players to connect something. We actually had one that would go over your um, arm, not even wrist. Did you end up building your own at some point or no? Uh, we never built their own full, like full hardware, but at some point we did work very closely with an OEM out of Finland for our own under mattress sleep sensor. So it was kind of a, a, a you know, a, a device that goes under the mattress, which works really well. And the beauty is that it doesn't need a user to do anything after the first time you plug it in. So it's very kind of frictionless um, versus all the bands and wearables that you have to plug in every day and charge and connect and all this stuff. Were you working with like the Northwestern football team and like uh, the college level or were you immediately going out there and like working with pro teams? Yeah, I, I think both. I mean, the college level, the college level, you know, tends to also be like fairly financially uh, lucrative because uh, they, at least football teams and basketball teams tend to have budgets for stuff well like funded. that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's surprising. You would think it's more funded than it is even at the pro level. Um, when you look at the budget of a large NFL team, you would be surprised that they actually don't have a lot of cash um, except for like player salaries and marketing, right? You know, um, but but point aside, yeah, like one thing led to another and we got very deep into not only sleep, but the whole kind of performance world, uh, athletic performance, how do you measure injury rates and, and the load for a player. So all that world is pretty sophisticated, but we spend quite a bit of time there. And, and yeah, it's kind of like one thing led to another, just pulling a thread and um, it was very nice that we were in school back then. So you could kind of intertwine business ideas with classes and you could like every class, our project would be something related to the business or like, you know, we would take a bunch of design research classes at the design Institute. And it's like, all right, let's just do user research for our customers. And so you can do a lot if you intertwine the two. And that was very proactive. So you started this company. So it's more of like a B2B2C because like the, these like companies were paying you guys to do that. When did you become a consumer? It was fully B2B. So it was fully B2B and very like large enterprise. So working with a NFL team, you know, you're talking about six figure contracts and long sales cycles. So we had to learn the B2B side and we got decently good at sales and more my founder than, than myself. But so it's like, you know, hardcore sales. You were talking about, you know, some of these college football teams are actually part of public, the public domain, you know, University of Alabama, like these are technically part of the state budget, you know, University of Tennessee, these are like state budgets. So you're even like negotiating with like state, right? Like you get a check Whoa. from like the, the state of Texas or something, <laughs> right? Um, but no, it was all B2B and we always knew that we care a lot more about helping people improve sleep and understand that sleep is so impactful. Um, because even I think now in 2022, it's a lot more, there's more kind of like awareness of sleep and its impact, not fully, but there's more than you fat, you know, go back, I think at this point, 2015 or so, um, people were already talking a lot about nutrition and fitness, obviously, but sleep was still not really in the space of health and, and wellness, right? It wasn't really talked about too much, but, um, we knew the impact was there, right? Like everyone should need to be understanding why sleep and circadian rhythms matter and how you should be um, taking advantage of them for your life. Because everything you care about in life, whether that's your cognitive abilities, your performance, you know, your physical abilities, your 
uh, hormonal levels, weight loss, like everything is just related to, you know, at some point sleep has a huge impact. Um, so we knew we wanted to have impact on the sleep side and the athletic was a very clear entry point and we kind of like, it was obvious that we could do a business, but the idea was to figure out how to bring this to the mass market, right? We were never sort of athletic first. It was never our idea to be like, oh, we love athletics and we want to just optimize, you know, the world's best athletes uh, a little more. You know, we wanted to, how do you then bring that to millions of people? Um, and we didn't know how that was a problem. And part of it at one point ended up being a lot of companies started reaching out to us through our network. And we had one of the great things about working with athletes is that you get really good PR because uh, you're working with, you know, large teams and it's just very kind of good for stories and PR and marketing. Um, so the stories would come out of us working with football teams and, and NBA teams and um, companies would reach out and say like, hey, why don't you do this same program with our sales team? Or why don't you do this program for our team of 100 people. So we started exploring like, okay, how would that look like if it turns out a sales team at a large company is kind of like the same thing as a sports team. It just may be like the budget are smaller and the performance maybe matters a little less for day to day and it's harder to measure. But a lot of the basics, you know, they're still human. They want to perform. They have a job, um, but they have a lot of like personal conflicts and trying to help someone still improve their sleep and habits. It's very similar. So we started doing that and that was going well. It's a, you know, B2B sales can be tricky. Um, and then honestly, kind of to close the loop back to how we got into cons the full consumer side is when COVID hit, um, you know, the athletic world shut down. I mean, everything shut down, but the athletic world totally shut down, right? Like and that was still your major point of revenue. That was major point of revenue, even though we knew that was in the future. That was still major point of revenue. That shut down. B2B kind of shut down because like no companies had any spare budget. If you think about March 2020, April 2020, you know, it was a kind of like dark times. No one knows how long it's going to take. Uh, you don't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of cash left. Uh, so it was like, right. We know our product works well because we give this product to people in sports scenes. We give this product to people in, in, um, regular companies and, and the end users are just kind of regular people and retention is good. Like our core product is good. Um, so we decided, right, how about we spend some time just going, putting a subscription offering and try to figure out if we can grow this because um, that might be the only bully that we have. So we kind of split and, you know, my co-founder was trying to figure out if B2B could scale and I was like, right, I'm going to go figure out if the consumer side could scale because we need to make a decision and we need to get something working before we run out of cash. And how many years in were you at this point? By 2020? Probably five or six um, from a very different company, right? Like it started as almost like a consulting tech service uh, for sports teams. But at this point, it's still the same entity, you know, the same legal entity and company, but it definitely has morphed over time. And so, you know, roughly five, five years, five, six years. And then you had fundraise, like what form of fundraising did you do as an angel? Did you go down the VC route? We had some funding before then that now you would call this pre-seed. Um, OC Angel, small fund joined. Um, and that was still when we were like athletic, 
trying to figure out the mass market. Um, and at that point, when COVID hit, we already had uh, proper seed funding. So from True Ventures and Freestyle and High Alpha, some really great funds mm-hmm. um, out there. So uh, we definitely had funding to take it to the mass market. That's when we raised our seed round in 2018 to figure out how do we bring this to the mass market. Uh, and we were exploring. And that included sort of like B2B SaaS teams or... B2B SaaS teams was one of the main <laughs> of, of the main hypotheses because we had so much inbound of companies trying to bring this to their employees. This is totally makes sense. Like I would totally... I, I talk a lot about sleep with my whole team. Um, and, and it's funny enough because today I had awful sleep and we were talking about this earlier, but um, generally speaking, I'm very aware of the power of it. Um, and then we pay for uh, in mo- mental health stuff. So I, I can understand that I would totally pay for sleep training as well. We, we should get you, we still have a few customers, so we should get you on. But uh, it's, yeah, we can talk about why the sales side is stuff, but it's, we have some very interesting anecdotes and, and insights there, but ultimately you're either going kind of health, like HR or insurance to really scale up, right? Like you're talking about get, how do you get to 10, hundred million in revenue, right? Um, you, you need to go either hard HR or kind of the insurance or even health provider side. And these are very different cycles um, of sales and go to market. I really dislike those paths because they're, the money's coming from someone different than you're solving for. The problem with, and this is now two years in the past, but you know, it's not what we do now, but you're then trying to sell something that no one is necessarily actively buying. Uh, so you first need to uncover, like there's very few people that have on their like list of priorities. Like I need to get my team sleeping better. If you convince, you know, if you educate them on why the reason their sales are lower is because your salespeople are tired and they're literally over the phone when they're trying to close a, a meeting, like they sound less energetic and there's great studies on how with higher sleep debt uh, and like sleep deprivation, you sound less empathic. Like there's a lot of really good stuff, but you know, no one, you know, head of sales, their, their priority is like, you know, hire people and increase sales efficiency and close more deals. And so you need to like figure out how to link sleep improvement to their main priorities versus um, directly solving you know, a problem that they're actively trying to solve, right? Like if they're um, trying to buy like a, you know, improve sales efficiency, they know they need a, a better CRM and like that just kind of like a direct sale. So um, it becomes, it's doable, but it was, it was only really working well for more like progressive leaders. You have to figure out how to tell the story right. And there has to be even the right people listening to the story. He was already for people like you that are like, yeah, I know sleep is important. I, I'm, the, I'm the, you know, I, I own the budget. I can make decisions. And like, yes, I want this. But uh, there's few people out there, you know, a very large companies that, you know, think that way and already have budget secured for things like that. So it was doable, but it was a, a tough sell. I think we're going to, at some point get back, you know, because it's so obvious. And so one last question before I want to jump into this whole consumer thing. So at this point in time, you had some sales from both of these sort of like general markets, like the sports world and, and B2B SaaS teams or, or just businesses. Um, what was the structure? Was there an app already and you were selling it and then people got access to this, to this app? Like what were you exactly selling at that point? Yeah. For most, it was a, you know, fixed 
per per user per year contract, and it had access to, um, you know, when you sign up, you would get a a physical box with a our sleep kit that had like a the hardware device that would go under the mattress. You would get a a sleep mask, orange glasses to help you with you know melatonin production at night, and earplugs, you know, that you could you know in case you're traveling and you need you know sound soundproof stuff. Um, and the app, right? Like the main app to get ultimately designed to help you improve your your habits for sleep and feeling better during the day. So that was kind of the collective thing. Obviously, on the B two B and even athletic side, you had the coach side of the of the business too, which is the analytics, right? Like sports teams, um, you needed to have you know the analytics are so important uh, on how their the coaches are making decisions on it, the nutritionists are, and all the analytics and reporting stack was very interesting and very, very useful because you all, and very tricky because you needed to be very privacy aware and privacy sensitive. Uh, like you, one of our promises was like, we will never tell like your head coach that you're just, you know, you didn't sleep last poorly. night. Right. So that <laughs> that's, you cannot do that because you will lose trust immediately. So then you would need to figure out how do you aggregate data, anonymize it, summarize it in ways that makes it useful without sort of like pointing fingers at uh, what's happening. So uh, that was kind of the, the whole kind of suite of, of, and I mean, for athletes, you had kind of like human coaches assigned to, so an athlete could uh, just message any, anyone, you know, message us and have a coach respond same day on whatever problem they were having. Um, and you would, you know, it's fun times working like with high-end athletes of all sorts of problems you can have and how to, uh, you have to be creative, right? Um, I remember just small anecdote, like this, this quarterback that shall not be named pretty, pretty high level. Um, he had a baby during the season. Like he had a, you know, his wife had a baby, I think on a Wednesday night and he had a game on Sunday and it's like, what do you do? Right. If the baby, like, you won't sleep for three nights. And if you don't sleep, you, you, you're going to lose the game. <laughs> so like, how do you help <laughs> navigate that situation where like, it's not even a habit. It's like, well, either you don't play or you figure out to like, you move out of your house for a couple nights. Uh, and like, you're not with your wife and your baby, but like, so even stuff that wasn't sort of like, and then they reached out to you about this problem. Yeah. They're, they're like, what should I do for my sleep? And and we're like, well, well you're just yeah. not going to sleep. We should talk to your your coach and figure out like either you're going to miss the game or you're just going to move out of your, you know, you're going to sleep somewhere else uh, to make sure you get, you at least sleep. Um, so stuff like that, you know, somehow ended up in our play because um, that that stuff was, was fun. So you had, a, and you had more regular, obviously, problems with people not able to fall asleep and kind of the more usual sleep guidance um, that we would do. At this point, you're like, okay, we're going to grab this exact service, cut out a few things. Like, I assume you don't assign a single coach to every pe person anymore. And, and so you've like created a core version of that service and that offering. And then you're like, I'm going to take it to the consumer. We cut out two major things. And that was the big bet. We cut a hardware and we cut out a human in the loop, uh, which we had. And we could afford, obviously, with B2B higher prices, we couldn't afford on the consumer side. So... Uh, that was the large bet. How do we make an experience that is still great? You know, it's valuable for people. It helps you improve your habits um, and you want to use it without it, both of those things, the hardware and the 
and the the human in the loop. Uh, so the hardware, you know, there's a bunch to do there, and that was a fun a fun problem to solve. But um, it would take sort of a hardware agnostic point of view, where if you have any wearable, we can connect to it. Uh, but if not, it also works fairly well, and it depends at what level of, of kind of fidelity you want. That makes sense. So you went direct to consumer. So like, okay, so I like this. Um, I also believe in this thing where you're trying to bet on like very hard things in a company and then one founder focuses on one bet and the other founder focus on, focuses on the other bet. So you said, I'm going to take what we built out and see if I can sell it directly to consumers using some like trial subscription model. How did you structure the team at that point? Like what was the divide? Was it the same engineering team and you were just prioritizing things differently and putting some like um, flag for this is the B2B version, this is the consumer version? Like walk, walk, us, walk us through the structure, both on the team side and just the product yeah, side. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we're a small company. We're, I mean, we're still about the same size. So I think we were maybe 10 people. Um, though it also, you don't have a lot of kind of like organizational structure problems to solve at that point. But um, it's interesting. We had, even before that point, because we, on the B2B side, one of the problems of that business is that you cannot iterate on product fast enough because uh, your, your volume is very low, right? Like even if you onboard a new client every week, you're talking like a handful of people or dozen of people that you can learn from, from the product perspective. Um, so one of the things we would do, and I'm a huge believer on, is we would still drive new cohorts of consumers uh, through regular marketing channels, very small, maybe like 50 to 100 people a week, um, purely to test product and to to know what's working, what's not, to change things in the morning. So we already had that almost like systematic approach for our product development cycle. Uh, you know, we have an incredible uh, product and designer. So like we were designing a product that was consumer grade. You know, that didn't really have to shift. You know, if you, we take a lot of pride in that work. So the end user experience felt consumer since day one, because uh, that was important for us and for ultimately create a good product for end users. Um, and we had kind of like a little bit of the the mentality of how do you always figure out you have enough volume of users to iterate on your core product, value prop and your core product, onboarding loops and all that stuff. Um, so when we wanted to actually test it out, it was less about hey, how do we test out like the core product? Because I don't think you, I don't think we could have changed core product value prop in a couple of months, right? That's just really hard to do. You're talking about years of research and experience and like figure out what works and whatnot and technology. So we couldn't really iterate on that as much, but we could iterate on like, well, how do you monetize it? How do you onboard users? And how do you market? Which are things that we've never really done before uh, in like a, systematic way uh and those things tend to be a little easier and faster to iterate on than saying like oh what is our core value prop and we need to like reinvent the product from scratch so we did it at that point you know thinking about consumer versus b2b it's like it's the same product we just change how people get into it how you onboard them and how they either you know do a subscription or free trial or, or this sort of like monetization mechanics um that we had to, we had no experience and had to learn, but, um, luckily I think that's it's one of my favorite things about just having conversations like this and with other 
in the VC world, just being able to share ideas with other founders where you can just get very smart very quickly with people working on similar domains, even though their core actual industries are very different, right? Like um, a very close, someone that become a very close mentor and consultant for us was someone that worked on a music app, like a music learning app. And it had nothing to do with sleep or health and fitness or anything, but it turns out that onboarding best practices and marketing best practices are the same, you know, because it's an app on the app store and a lot of the similarities are the same. So you can get up to best practices very quickly that, you know, the infamous kind of 20% effort gets to 80% of the way. And you could do that very quickly when we were starting from literally zero. So, um, I remember it was like a three month sprint trying to figure out how to scale up marketing to like non-trivial levels, um, you know, in the 10, 10, 20 K of revenue a week to try just seeing like, I'm sorry, a month to try seeing like, right, this is not a hundred dollars, right? There's something here that at least we can glance at and can get to millions in the future. Um, and it was just, um, fast iteration there. I think. On the team organization, back to your initial question, it's kind of, I think being able to have some of the culture like shipping fast, um, especially when a lot of the setup, it's very kind of like infrastructure driven where you need um, just getting off the ground with consumer stuff. You just need really good instrumentation, really good analytics, really good um even like onboarding, funnel activation, all that stuff is a lot of infrastructure work. Um, and some of it is just kind of blocking and tackling and being able to just, being also a CTO, being able to move very quickly and knowing how that can be a high priority for the business, even if it's not sort of like a core value prop, right? Uh, we just need, you know, to instrument things better so we understand if marketing is working or not. Or So that came directly from you then. So you were like, I need to understand these things. So we got to build this stuff in there. Um, it's, it wasn't some like marketing person or, or, yeah, no, at this point we didn't even have a marketing person on the consumer side, um, took us a bit together. We had marketing person on B2B and marketing, um, on the content side. We do a lot of sleep related and health related content, uh, but not in any way kind of on the, what you will call like traditional user acquisition. Um, that is probably more what we were trying to figure out to do, um, but again, through our network, we found a consultant that helped us just get the basic stuff done. Like, what do you need to just even start testing out ads, right? I had no clue, but not, it's not that complicated. And then you were lucky and unlucky. I think you were lucky that you started before iOS 14.5 because there was like a beauty in knowing what it's like when you have all the data. <laughs> and, then, <clears throat> and then you have to shift, right? So... Tell me about that shift. I think you you already knew to this world. You had just started spending maybe for a few months, I assume, at that point. Um, and then iOS 14.5 comes around and pulls a rock from underneath you. So tell me, yeah, tell me how what went on, how how prepared were you? I still um, have nightmares of that. I still now? have nightmares. I yeah. remember <laughs> when Apple announced their stuff, it was September 2020. Uh, we had like six months of not massive scale, but at that point we were like, all right we're going to go full and B2C. We're going to kill the B2B business. We're going to kill it. We're going to sunset all the existing customers there. Um, 
And I was getting married that month and going on a short honeymoon in the middle of COVID. And Apple announced like next week we're releasing Scan and we're going to break everything. And it was like, holy crap, right on my honeymoon, Apple is going to like release iOS uh, 14 and break all marketing. Uh, turns out they delayed. Did you uh, explain what Scan is just for the audience? Traditionally, every single iPhone had effectively an identifier that you could just you know, had a number. Uh, so my phone to every single app used to have a number that was the same across apps. So no one, it was my phone, but they knew that it was phone, you know, three to one. So when you would have an ad on, let's say a Facebook property. So the Instagram app, Instagram knew that it was showing an, an ad to phone three to one. And then you had us on the other side, the advertiser saying like, oh, the phone three to one started a trial like he's a great user you know he's gonna he, he made a purchase so you know it's it's a good quality user that enjoys the product so then instagram could be very good at finding people that are similar to three to one uh you know that phone and apple just single-handedly kind of for a bunch of reasons kill that what's called the idsa the id i don't even know what it stands for the, the id of every phone um effectively um and they replace it with something called SK Ad Network, uh, the store kit advertising network, where it tries creating some of these attribution technologies so you can still connect users to ads while preserving privacy. Um, but now it's getting a little better two years in and the next version is going to be even better. But back then, it was very, very unclear. And it basically shut down what the last five years of how the marketing world worked, especially for apps, but also for e-commerce, it just kind of moved the clock back 10 years, right? Um, it really felt like they had not done their work. Like, I actually like what they, the, the thesis was great. I was like, okay, you're coming in here and you're making it better for consumers and their data is not going to be as like prevalently easy to capture and things like that. But then the you looked at the APIs and, like, did you talk to a single marketer building this thing? Because it just looked so bad and and so limiting, just broke so many teams. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that it's, it depends upon of you whether you want to have the point of view of is it malice or is it incompetence. It, it's hard to know exactly which way it was. the the, the foundation the the, the the fundamental point of view is very strong, and I'm confident they're going to get it to a point that it's ultimately way better for the industry. Um, but they, they could have done it in a way that it was actually more useful than what we had before um, while fully preserving privacy and not creating this sort of like cottage industry of data sharing and data piping if they had, would have done it from the ground up uh, actually work well. Um, I think now they're rolling out changes um, and I don't know if you want to get into details, but they're rolling out changes over the next few months that hopefully it's going to make it even better. And I think it's going to just be a win-win for everyone, both marketers, uh, kind of user privacy, because it's really going to, uh, there's going to be no need to find other complicated ways of doing attribution. If you can trust Apple central service that also preserves privacy, but still gives enough data to be able to find users that are going to be good customers. There's really two areas of it, right? There is like, do I know which of these campaigns and ads that I'm running are pr bringing the best users? 
Um, and then there's the other problem, which is, am I giving these signals back to the ad network so they can do their own work there? I, I think they're pretty against that second one still. Like, I, I don't think they're willing to give you, as Facebook or Instagram, enough signal. Um, even with the new one, I, I, unless you disagree with me, but I think I do. I, I probably disagree. At their own. Yeah, no, I probably disagree with you there because I think those two things sound like two different things for people like me and maybe like you, like when we're on the advertising side, but they're actually the same thing, right? Like by, by doing the second, you kind of need to solve for the first um, and getting visibility and you cannot really solve the first without the second. Uh, you can try with things like, you know, you know, mixed modeling and, and statistical analysis, but it ultimately doesn't work that well. It doesn't work for you and me. It works for the ad networks though. Like Facebook's gotten way better yeah. right, at doing that over the last six months. Yeah. So with the new scan and scan is kind of the scan network, it's, it's called 4.0, the fourth version. I think right now we're basically the release, the release version two is when, when they really shut off everything. Um, and then with scan four, they're finally giving us a bunch more tools. So they're, you know, they have this constraint of only 99 campaigns. Um, and they're, and they basically, you know, ultimately the networks so of Facebook or Google have to do some sort of mapping between campaigns from what we, we think as campaigns as advertisers and actual what they call campaigns to Apple. Uh, just to try to find more signal. Um, and it's fun to explore that data set when you look at the raw data, how Facebook is doing it under the hood. But um, you, that's basically expanding to campaign and creative. So effectively giving not 99 slots of information, but giving, I believe, close to a thousand slots. So you can have a lot more fidelity um, of what's watch working once not you can break down by a lot more groups which still is going to give you a signal um and then they're doing another thing which was the other big problem that was the privacy threshold so um, if you don't hit minimum number of insults per campaign per day which by the way it's a number that isn't documented by apple which creates a lot of other pain because no one knows what the number is um you get basically zero signal you either get full like signal of how many you know purchases or events uh, you, you know, you make per campaign per day or you get zero. With the new system, Apple is introducing the, I forget the exact terminology, but granularity. So if you don't meet the private threshold at the highest level, you, you're still going to be able to get some data. But instead of having eight values, you know, you're only going to have three. So, you know, you can do high, medium, low value users instead of healthier, more kind of granular data. And I think combined with that, and I think all the work that networks are doing, like Facebook and and everyone else, I think it's going to get a lot better. And we're still going to be able to have the signal that we need in many ways. Uh, it depends on Apple executing on, on the promise here. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how that whole thing plays out. I still it think creates... I couldn't have imagined doing what we had to do in 2020 when you had kind of full data, you know, attribution doing that now, because you could like, now you could not test with small budgets, right? You need to be hitting, um, you know, I don't know, like, like 
now you need a hundred, now you need to get a hundred users a day minimum, right? Uh, for anything, to test anything, right? So when we were trying to start out spending, I don't know, $500 a day just felt like, holy crap, we're just throwing so much money out. Is it going to work? Is it not? And now you just need to say like, well, that you need to start there and you need to leave it on for seven days and, and even 14 days because the other side of scan is that it has all this random timers and data delays and, and all that stuff. So he basically, I think, hires the the bar where like you cannot, yeah, like if you're a small app developer, it becomes really hard to try testing marketing from scratch uh, at small budgets. Like it becomes... And when it came out, you know, Facebook's rhetoric was, hey, this is going to hurt small businesses and things like that. But no one understood why. And then so the press looking at it were like, well, Facebook is just trying to care about their revenue. I guess it's going to make it harder. But it's actually true. You know, it's making it harder for small businesses to acquire customers. It's pretty bad. Um, and we now have, we've always had some limits on ad spend, but we have it way higher for apps, app companies. If you come to us and you want to work with us. Like, well, if you're not spending a few hundred thousand dollars a month, you're stuck in this world where I can't actually know what's working. So um, I can't possibly help you just because our stru the structure of our company is such that we care so much about the inputs and the outputs of the work. Um, and we, we're much less like sitting around thinking that this could work. We're literally looking at the data every day. So um, our, the structure of our process doesn't work. Uh, and it made me sad because, you know, we started in startups um, and, and working super early stage companies. And it, it's, it's probably getting a lot better, you know, a little better now that privacy thresholds are going to be more flexible with scan forward. But and also like Facebook's gotten better at their own prediction. Right. So at the beginning it was pretty bad, uh, bad. And then Facebook changed their models and you don't need the 50 conversions a week on each ad set anymore on mobile. They figured out how to do it with 20. So that's actually like, yeah, way it, it's better. way better. And I think. Me being, you know, CTO, that I, I I had this, you know, we had to solve the marketing problem, but um, and we didn't have a marketer back then, so it was like, all right, someone's got to do it. Um, I happen to enjoy that stuff, so I right, I'll take it on and figure it out because I I really believe I'm like co-founder first, uh, and like CTO second as sort of my job, so to speak. Meaning like company priorities are way more important than whatever day to day actual job title I have um, and being able to just during that time every, it was so unclear like what's changing what's not what the APIs and the SDKs are changing like just even going to the source of like you know reading the Apple doc trying to figure out what changes reading the F, you know Facebook doc so I think that really shortened the loop because I could do a lot of those changes myself. I could go in and, and update the SDK and see what would happen. And um, and that's, I think, one of the advantages of happens that I was doing the marketing side and I'm technical and I knew the engineering side pretty well. So we didn't have to like have all these delays in uh, trying to get scan working. Um, and I remember when it first, it first went live, I think in March of 2021, because uh, Apple delayed it and all that stuff. Um, but it wasn't enforced until June. So that period of March to June, for some reason, it was incredibly good. We think that Facebook had their own inventory as they were testing out the system. And mo because most advertisers hadn't put the new scan 
SDKs on, yeah, yeah, we were getting like really good performance. It was a different auction. It was a different auction before everyone came up. Being able to just be like, as soon as scan launch, we had the SDK ready because we did, you know, we didn't have to be like, I knew it was generally easy to do. I could do it myself. We didn't have to go through like our usual product development cycle. That's a lot more structured and we have sprints and we have plans and uh, we don't want to be hijacking engineering time. So what you're saying is that you you commit code to production without going through the process. That's great. I'm sure your engineers love hearing that. No, you still have process, <laughs> no, you still have process but uh, I'm yeah, just it's, it's, uh, <laughs> the flexibility is important. I think that's why um, I'm still trying to figure out like, what's the next, how do you keep scaling teams? Um, if, what, like the next layer and something that's becoming a lot more common is having sort of marketing analytics, engineering, or a marketing ops, so technical that is embedded within marketing to help facilitate all this stuff. Um, and because it, it just takes a lot of cycles to figure out how everything connects to everything. Um, and some things are really like a minor, minor change and some things aren't. So the minor change, you can just get done quickly and you don't need to go through like your usual sort of like longer term prioritization process that usually most product teams are going to have. So yeah, most product instrumentation things are very fast and most teams run it through the same uh, sort of prioritization loop and it doesn't make sense to me. And it's a balance because you also don't want to be like distracting engineers every single day. Like, hey, can you make this small change and release? And can you make that small change? Like, that's also very unproductive. So trying to figure out what the path forward is, is going to be very interesting. Um, I think it should really be someone like an analytics engineer or uh analytics ops person being embedded in marketing uh, at some point. So Yeah, I think like a growth engineer is what I've called it in the past, where it's like an engineering-minded person. is They're trying to get very good at growth in general, kind of like what you ended up having to do, right? You're an engineer, you think growth problems are interesting, um, and so you're willing to sort of spend the time learning all these systems. And in this scenario, you're the founder of the company, so you're... you're pretty much care about growth. Uh, but I was that, you know, I think if I, um, if I didn't have like the founder part in my head, um, you could have probably sold me early on and being like a very good growth engineer. Um, Andrew Chen and I spoke a lot about this. And at some point he tried, we, we, I, I tried to like join his company actually, like he, he thought I was not enough, a good enough engineer, which was great. Um, and it, I, I ended up doing product management for years after that. Um, and I was a little scared of San Francisco. So I, I remember going and interviewing with his team. He was like doing some like, I would say an intellectual exercise of how to create growth loops uh, that are not related to the product themselves. So they, they had launched like a series of products that had millions of users, but awful churn just to show that they're able to sort of like grow products very well. Um, and was entering with their team and remember thinking like, this is just not a city I want to be in yet. Um, and I was very scared of it. I was very young. I was like 19 at this point. Um, but I think you could have sold me on uh, if their growth engineering paradigm that it exists now, I would have been happy being in like different companies um, doing that type of work. And I think more and more you'll see them being separate teams, having their own like discipline and caring about things. Like uh, I tend to think of our team like that, where we have engineers and, and data scientists. And I called those roles growth engineering roles when I was hired. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very interesting because we, when we grew a little more, uh, 
you know, last, you know, we raised our series A beginning of last year. Um, so we needed to add a few more people. Um, and it was time to split our kind of product pods into two. Um, and it's always tricky. Like, how do you go through a split, right? Like you can, there's a lot of different playbooks you can run, but, um, we ended up sort of choosing, all right, we're going to have a growth team, a growth product team and a product team sort of in the, in the more modern series, modern sense, maybe we, we like Marty Kagan kind of empowered approach where like you really have a PM designer and whatever functional uh, engineers you need on that team to be empowered and autonomous, right? Like the team can set the priorities and they can execute on everything without needing anyone else. Like you can have a team that doesn't have the functional skills to execute on their priorities, right? Which is very common where you have teams that like... Yeah, this is like the Spotify pod model as well. Like they, yeah. So we split into growth and retention kind of core product work. Um, and that helps. That's certainly like part of it. You know, growth is in charge of, tends to be a lot of onboarding related acquisition loops, uh, monetization, a lot of that work. Um, you still end up having... Are there like marketers on that team or is it still a no, product? No, it's still, it's still primarily shipping things in our core product, in a core app. In our, our main product as a company is an app that you can download in the app stores and they're primarily shipping product, you know, software on that app. Sometimes on the website, but that's more rare. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't bleed into marketing that much. And I think that's something that we're still trying to figure out what the right move is. Uh, we're not big enough to have that dedicated engineering supporting marketing. Uh, so the growth team usually um, is going to jump in and help. You know, you have a lot of just instrumentation. Even if you go outside of pure sort of advertising, you go through like analytics and, and, uh, email marketing and you want to have the right events and then even like all the revenue stack that goes connects to like the app store revenue hooks and the stripe and whatever billing system you use how do you wrangle all of that we tend to have that under the the growth team but it's something that is not obvious and and you know as you grow many companies end up splitting that into their own pods with ownership on that but um it's going to be an interesting What's there? So I guess like two questions. One, do you use some like um, OKR sort of like ask um, apparatus to to run things? Okay, and then so what does that team's OKRs look like? Yeah, by and large, you're gonna have things like improve trial start, which is you know the, you know percent of people that start a free trial or kind of revenue per user um, in many ways, um, but a lot of the kind of hidden things about the OKR systems and some of the flaws is that you do have a lot of kind of business as usual things of like, you will never have a clear, hey, figure out why scan data isn't going through as part of your OKRs. You know, maybe that's a marketing OKR. So we tried having shared OKR between that team and marketing and it works to some extent, but yeah, by and large, the team is sort of on, on things like once you get a user in the app, how do you get them to realize a value and be convinced enough to start a free trial? So, um, so we, we tend to, to ship them every few months. It can be more focused on the conversion or on a different user segment, but for the most part, it tends to be around that angle, you know, trial start revenue, um, that sort of stuff. Like, is that, is the rate of those things or is the volume of those things? Like, are you saying you need to get 
10,000 trial starts or you're talking about no. the conversion rate from trial to subscription? Conversion rate, so. right? Like it needs to be a conversion rate because one of the challenges, like that team is not accountable for the marketing budget, right? Like when, when marketing performance went down and we had to cut budgets or scale down volume, it's not that team's fault in a way, right? Like team, the, the team, and, and you know, the way we measure most of these OKRs need to be on all A-B testing, right? On, it cannot only be on like, oh, blended trial start rates moved from the five to 10% or whatever metric it is. It needs to be, because the marketing channel change tends to affect your core product numbers uh, a lot, especially in times like this that you have very drastic changes in the underlying sort of like which users you're able to to talk to. Um, so everything needs to be about the rates, right? Like we just back to probability. It's like how, what percent, you know, what's the probability of someone going into the user or what's the expected value of a user when they sign up the app and can you systematically do the right proof with A-B testing at some level of significance that you're, you know, increasing that probability over time. And if done well, you should then see global, like actually fully aggregated blended numbers you know, going in the right direction too, but sometimes they don't. Let's talk about the, t- the, 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 the that exact thing you just said. Sometimes they don't, right? And like, it's because of the combination. The, the combination part is the hard part to get done, right? Like the marketing team could be bringing low quality people and the growth team could be doing all they can to increase the conversion rate, but the quality of traffic is low. And so does the marketing team, how do you judge them? What are their OKRs? Are they caring about like ultimate revenue or are you saying I want these many installs? Like how do you talk to that team? Yeah, I mean, marketing and right now it's a, it's a very small team and, you know, I'm still heavily involved. It's like you and an agency. Yeah, <laughs> and, and one person, right? Uh, so yeah. it's, you know, by no means we have this sort of like organizational bureaucracy to how to communicate, you know, communication is important, but you're not going through totally. levels and levels of, of goal setting here. Um, it's, I mean, revenue and marketing efficiency, which is back to like company kind of cash flow, financial, like what do we need from the business viability point, point of view? Um, and I think, you know, we, we sometimes after doing it for a bit, you start realizing what the constraints are and what levers we have, you know, uh, things like looking at very basic seg- segmentation aspects that the marketing team can have visibility into, right? Things like for us, it's the age, right? Age matters a lot for monetization uh, for us, right? Um, and it tends to be very easy for marketing to drive more traffic of, let's say, way younger users that tend to be quote unquote cheaper to acquire, um, but they don't convert. So very quickly, you start having like a right different targets for different age and, and try sort of like saying, um, we really don't want to target users under X, you know, years old, uh, unless it's, it's extremely kind of below this levels, you know, w- way cheaper than, um, you know, kind of like, um, more. Oh yeah. So like the economics of that cohort doesn't just make sense. So you have to make it make sense or stop doing it. That's hard. It's like trickle into OKR in a systematic way, so to speak, but you know, we're talking about it all the time and we're sort of working with a growth team. And I think here, flexibility is key to be like, all right, we realize that insight, you know, that segmentation factor matters a lot. Um, how do we run a product sprint to try 
moving one of those cohorts the other direction or or should we try making the the users that aren't converting well convert more or should you just try ignoring them and you go through an exercise of like right first let's try seeing if we can move their conversion oh interesting i would have i would have gone let's just ignore them for now yeah unless there's a, a cheap way you run through <laughs> like right is there a way to like make this user valuable because they have you know let's say great retention or, or all these like good properties but they just don't have a credit card or, or whatever that is so um i think that's where like the rigidity of okrs get in the way and and it's good for like high level company business goals but sometimes like the flexibility of iterating on on sort of at the weak level is where it really kind of shines and, and having this team sucking a lot i think is important i've done okrs like not twice at different companies we don't do them at paramel um because we go through a different process. But the thing that I like about OKRs, and I think he talks about this, you know, if you read High Output Management, Andy Grove's book, where he reveals OKRs in there and then later on, Dior talked about it, right? Um, he talks about how it's basically the process in itself that's useful, not the thing at the end. The process of going through who owns what, what are we trying to get done? What are these like overall goals? How are you gonna track these things? That's what actually matters. Um, the rest is kind of like, okay, you can keep it as a tracking system, but it's not that useful. Um, but getting people to go through the ringer of being introspective about their role in the company, getting ownership assigned, that's what actually matters. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And we still, we still do it. I still struggle with part of, of the framework, for example, where I think for kind of true product innovation and new product development, OKRs is a bad system um, because often you don't even know what metric. Yeah, like you're moving revenue at some point, but like there's miles and miles of stuff between revenue and like to what is a product we're building and to what user segment and what audience, right? Like those things become a lot. And there's ways in the OKR framework to account it, but it just becomes cumbersome. We're like You're like hacking a system that was created for these like companies that were scaling super fast. Like it's a different world. And finding the right level of metric is tricky, right? Like where if it's too high level, you know, move retention or move revenue, it becomes a little less useful because your actions cannot move the metric at all, um, at least rarely, um, until you actually know the levers very well and you're very clearly scaling, right? Um, but you also don't want to go too detailed, too low level in the metrics because then you're like, I don't know, optimize the people that sign up for feature Y because you think that's highly correlated to everything else. But then it's like, well, what if you discover, because you're still early, that feature Y is like not the main priority. Do you just like scrap everything? Uh, so finding the right level of metric is probably hard you know half of the job of trying you know having good goal setting and i think that could be pretty harsh um so what we still do them i find you know like you the planning process is, is very useful to at least know the the end states and what could be but um our product process is sometimes a little detached from uh the okr and we run our own product cycles that ultimately generally Kind of fold into it but it's not exactly the same it's not it's not one-to-one -one. what's uh what's the cadence like how often are you doing it okr is quarterly um and our product cycles are quarterly but we do six week like six week cycles during the quarter so uh two of those cycles per per quarter seem to be pretty healthy and in six weeks 
uh, you can generally have enough time to push a big rock. Um, so we like that amount of time uh, to set sort of the bets that we want to place for. We think a lot about in bets, you know, which bet we're putting, how much appetite we have for a given bet. Um, and that cadence tends to work fairly well. That doesn't work that well for marketing, right? Like when you need to like figure out analytics, right? Like it might be too slow. So um, that's kind of like a depending the needs for marketing. So are you launching a new app version every six weeks? Effectively? Oh, no, we're launching an app version. I mean, a couple of times a week, maybe, maybe once a week. Okay, yeah, so yeah, definitely more. But it's not your launch cycles. It's more like how you prioritize. It's how like you prioritize weeks. and what are the larger projects you're working on, right? Um, you know, and that's where you also have sometimes you're going to have discrepancies between the kind of growth and core product or retention themes where growth teams can often place smaller bets that are more kind of encapsulated. You know, if you're doing a pricing test or you're doing a new uh, subscription type or kind of like these things that may be, um, or kind of an improvement in the onboarding flow to, you know, communicate more clearly uh, the set of features that we offer or the set of problems that this is solving for, for a user you might be able to get those done a lot faster. Uh, so the, the frequency sometimes does matter between um, the teams in terms of like, you know, one team maybe focus on two large things, whereas the other one maybe focus on one large thematic project that has like six different uh, components or tests that can be released in isolation um, and, and gathering kind of learning more quickly than just waiting six weeks. So, um, it's, and that goes back to like the, the volume and the statistics of things when you're testing, the higher in the funnel you are, you tend to be able to, because your volume is going to be higher or you tend to be able to get statistical significance and things faster. Um, and it's not always true. Sometimes you have to wait until you get, well, if it depends on what the goal is, right? If you're trying to still figure out retention based on an upper funnel chain. Yeah, exactly. You, you still have to, still wait, have to you know? wait unless you have very good proxy metric <laughs> yeah. for a, a longer, but yeah, you still have to wait. But uh, generally speaking, the higher in the funnel, you're going to have more users so you can like detect uh, whether a change you made is actually impactful or not uh, way faster. Um, and as you scale, that amount of time tends to get fast, like shorter too. Um, so... Mm -hmm. It becomes like, it, it's a nice, it's a nice. nice kind of feedback loop where um, it's yeah. nice. It can be dangerous. Uh, I think I've been playing with the idea of having kind of hurdle rates for our investment, just kind of in the finance world that you have minimum hurdle rates for investments and kind of financial projects. Mm -hmm. um, how to have that in, in product teams where really anything that doesn't move numbers, I don't know less than 5%, it doesn't matter, right? Because you can spend a lot of time optimizing things 1%, 2% um, when you need to be working on things that are going to move things 20%, right? And in, in, the, in your stage, yes. I think there is a point in time where you are just caring about the 1% to 5% improvements in a product cycle, um, but you're probably not there yet. Yeah. Uh, at some point, yeah. And it's interesting because ultimately you can get that 20% by stacking a lot of 1% changes, but um, it can also become kind of a large operational burden on a small team when you're trying to do 10 tests and each of them trying to get significance 
And you're at best going to find a local maximum when you're doing that, right? You're not going to find- I don't think like that process works well for sort of the more innovation, new product work. I mean, in fact, I think it works pretty terrible for that. Um, and, you know, an A-B test is never going to give you true insight into what you should be doing, right? It's going to, I view it more as like, it helps validate a hypothesis of what people want or when you're unsure the level of impact it can have, but it's not directly what going to actually tell you what you should do. You know, you need to want to talk to customers, which we do a lot, right? Like actually getting some meetings and, and surveys and everything, you know, to actually understand which people, what are they doing that they find your app valuable or not? Um, and what are the obstacles they have and circumstances um, in their way of either not realizing the value in your product or realizing it? Um, and so you need that qualitative work to actually figure out what to do. And then A-B tests are really, I think, useful to then figure out if your hypothesis is correct, right? Like is, it is, um, that's harder on the, on more like product, I'm sorry, growth level kind of optimization work where like very little qualitative, like qualitative work is going to be really hard to figure out if, um, you know, uh, a seven day free trial or a 14 day free trial is better, right? Like, yeah, you know. You just need to put it out there. You know, I mean, you can have your hypothesis like, oh, people want a, a longer trial because uh, it takes a bit to change your habits and you want to have the time to really play with the product and understand it. And, and one day is too little, seven is the middle, 14 is enough. So you can have like, all right, why you think is right, but then until you have enough people and enough volume, you just won't know because it is kind of like fundamentally a, a quantitative question where your answer is like a number uh, in many ways. And and the qualitative feedback doesn't help that much for that small improvement. Yeah, you're not like changing the core of the product. It's just like how you're presenting it. It's like a very different portion of the thing. Uh, I have one last question for you and maybe we won't have time to really cover it, but... The, you talked about the hurdle rate. Like what What do you use as like a framework of prioritization right now? Like how does it work in your head and then how does it operationalize? Oh man, the, the one of the questions that's one of the hardest and like I feel it's always changing. You know, you have your basic kind of like product management ideas of, you know, impact, reach, um, estimated effort. Um, you know, often we try refining things so like what's actually the metric that matters for the business. Um, in the recent times, you know, last six months, marketing efficiency and payback has taken a lot of focus from the kind of general business world. Like we need to get the business in a more kind of cash efficient way, uh, maybe growth, grow a little slower, but more efficiently. So we're even trying to map things like, all right, can we back out? a project estimated impact straight up to marketing, like to, to efficiency at the business level, uh, you know, at the payback or um, the revenue level. How are you, are you doing like net present value stuff? Like what are you doing there? Not quiet, but we are trying to map most things to uh, how does it change our month one or month six unit economics uh, to, to at least make decision on impact. 
uh, there are things that you cannot map it that clearly. You know, like I'm saying, a, a large kind of fundamental product better on a totally new user segment is going to be hard to map because it might be more long term, but something in the shorter term can definitely should be mapped. And you can very quickly understand like, all right, there's no way that thing gets you more than 5% here. Let's not even consider that. Um, so at least that tends to encourage conversation of like, all right, maybe we're debating between these three larger projects that we think under kind of back of the envelope assumptions can, if things pan out properly, give us a 10% boost. So then you become, that's where kind of the art comes in and be like, right, which one do we think is lower effort? Which one maybe is more aligned with long-term plans and kind of just going through that. Um, and I think that's a process that our, our product leads focus on with a lot of input from myself and my co-founder from like that we try bring to more of the business level objective, financial objectives. Um, and, you know, our, our product leads are going to be a lot closer to what users actually want and need every single day. Um, so trying to kind of really bridge between the two. So I don't think that gives you the answer that you want to like, this is the magical prioritization exercise, but no, okay. Actually, this is exactly what I wanted. Cause I think people write about magical versions of these and I mean, it's not going to be realistic when you go and sometimes you want like, hey, this is a spreadsheet and you have this like perfect weighted estimation of how much effort and time something's going to take and the impact and you have confidence bar. And then it's like, all right, a PM and maybe an analytics data science person spent two weeks working on this stuff. And like half of it is just total guesses. So it's just hard. So some of that work is useful, right? Like you should have a point of view on all right, if you launch that feature, do you think you're going to get 10% of people to use it or 80% of people, right? Like if, if you don't even like know where, which order of magnitude you are, all right, that's a problem. But uh, you just don't know if it's going to be 10 or 20%. And, and that's right there. Like, 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 yeah, and I think it comes down to what we were talking about earlier. Like the process of going through that type of prioritization is what actually matters. It's, it's, you're, you're going to be very wrong about the numbers. But you go through the rigor of actually evaluating the ideas. And sometimes they're, they're quite obvious. Oh, of course we have to do this one. Or like, like you said, there's three that we have like some level of conviction that are going to be good. And now let's talk about which, which one of the three we're going to do first. Um, but it's the process of caring about priority that actually matters. It's like similar to the OKR problem. Like it's not the, the outcome itself that matters. It's the process that you go through to vet the ideas thoroughly before you put effort, money, and um, engineering and product effort behind building them out and launching them, right? And I think one of the things that I love our team does is that we tend to cluster them by kind of thematic or strategic angle. So you have sort of, um, you tend to have, all right, let's say things around organic referral loops, or one theme, right? Like how do you get people to share word of mouth referral loop? Or you have more kind of pure pricing optimization and pricing testing and, and pricing mix, right? Um, where you want to have a point of view as to when you did social priorities, like are we in a mode of just doubling down on one theme and placing all of our bets on one theme? Or do we want to say, hey, this cycle we want to have one bet 
one project in each of the three teams that we know over the long term we have to work on. Um, and I don't think there's a right answer because you can just back out the numbers in a way. But sometimes, like you know what, we have a sense that organic referral loops are very very impactful. Uh, we have good learnings there. We're gonna spend because we're gonna be in the headspace. We're gonna place a lot of bets here. Uh, so you can think about the use, the kind of exploit or explore different themes. And I think uh, that ends up being a useful conversation to know. Um, are we doubling down on a lot of similar projects because it's looking so fruitful? Or are we just gathering more information about different, totally different themes? So the next cycle, maybe you double down on one. Um, so that's a level that sometimes comes into play. And I find it useful to think about. This is why also sometimes you need different levels of people thinking about these things because you're going to think more high level. And that's like literally, like you're thinking about portfolio of bets um, where maybe like your marketer is thinking about, I just need to move this number right now. So <laughs> let me run these like five tests around pricing or whatever. Um, and that, that might be like an interesting thing of like having other people look at this whole apparatus from time to time or having people step back and think through the problem from scratch over and over again is very helpful and um, trying to get the right bets in place. Um, Leon, thank you so much. I know we went a little over. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. This is super fun. Uh, I'll probably have you on again every few months just because I think it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see the growth. Yeah, I feel we haven't even started talking about the marketing side, but um, maybe that can, be, that can be next time. There's a lot of, of fun stuff everywhere, but... Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a, a fun chat. And good to know that uh, you have your electronics and, and physics background over there. Uh, uh, super into it. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I, build, uh, I built like a Burning Man camp, like I, I was telling you uh, earlier, every year. And the hardware part of my brain loves that because we built solar panels there and I have our own like lithium ion battery apparatus. Um, oh, man. It's super that's fun. fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I love it. So glad to have you, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. And that's a wrap. I'm so grateful for Leon and, and the time he spent um, with me on the pod. We've actually gone back and forth a little bit more about economics since we recorded a pod. He's quite um, quite a curious man and, and it's been really fun to get to know him better. Um, you know, follow and subscribe on, on whatever platform you're on and listening to this show. Um, we're, we're trying to in increase our, you know, footprint a little bit just to be able to get a better sense of how we can modify these and make them better. So if you have feedback, please send them to nima at paramel.com. I'm trying to make these as useful as possible. Um, I'm obviously very curious <laughs> and spend some time talking to these founders about their past and, and trying to understand them um, and, and sort of building this thing for myself. But uh, I'd love to get feedback on it and, and get better at producing the type of content that you all want to watch and listen to. Um, on our next episode, I'm, I'm bringing on my co-founder to talk about uh, their, our overall growth process. Um, so if you're running a growth team or, or starting one um, in your company or, or founder, it would be quite useful for you to go uh, go through that. So I'm pretty excited about that episode. Um, you know, subscribe and you should be able to get it in the next week or so. Um, and we're going to go through our general process and, and the standards in which uh, we enforce our team to follow. Um, anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this was the Hyper Growth Experience. Have a good one.